Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you guys are clicking on this link from our mailing list, then thank you for that. If not, make sure you go ahead and do that, and you can find that on our website, www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get into the episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. All right, we are back everyone today. And today we have another very special guest with us and that is Claire Zai. And um, I don't know if you guys follow her on Instagram, you should be because she posts a lot of excellent information on there. But um, so let me give you a brief primer on her. I will have her introduce herself a little bit later for stuff that I missed, but pretty much a bachelor's degree in physiology, neuroscience, master's in uh, biomechanics of like physiology, biomechanics and high level athletes with amputations. But the more important thing is her passion and enthusiasm for woman empowerment within strength training within life and pretty much everything else. And that her posts on Instagram reflect that she is also a coach for barbell medicine and has also been competing in powerlifting since 2018 and holds multiple state records. Once again, if you're not already following her Instagram, please go do so. Claire, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So how did you get into the role that you're in right now for what you do? Uh, why do you why do you enjoy what you do and kind of what are your yeah, goals? So for the I got into coaching because I was a competitive athlete. And so I started training uh, for powerlifting during my master's. And then that kind of evolved into like starting a small coaching business, uh, which then I was lucky enough to get to know the barbell medicine team. And they kind of absorbed me into their into their group. And science has always been something that I'm really interested in and really passionate about. Uh, But it's never been something that I could fully explore the way I wanted to within science. So I got a science job after my master's. I was working in a a lab through the Navy. So I was working with high-level athletes through the Navy um, and injured individuals through the Navy as well. And um, the science that we could do was still not direct patient contact. Like we were working with patients, but it wasn't like direct patient interaction or assistance. And that's really where I wanted to end up was working directly with patients and working with them like one-on-one. And so from there, coaching gave me that a little bit, but then that still ended up not being enough. So I'm hoping to pursue a career in medicine as well. Definitely. I hear you're taking MCAT classes right I, now, correct? How's that going? It's terrible. I hate them. <laughs> Every time I sit down, I'm like, this isn't what a doctor does, but it's necessary in order to get to that point. <laughs> so I don't know if yeah. you guys still Look, use man, your chemistry work, I, but I yeah. hate chemistry. Absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> Yeah, looking at the MCAT right now, I don't think I would pass that test. It's just not reflective of what you <laughs> learn in medical school or like what you need on your day to day. It's just useless. It's a good measure of yeah, it's, it's a good measure of can you take a test, which is important, but uh, the concepts on the test are not important. <laughs> so, 
Definitely. I'll tell you, it's a little bit of that continuing on into medical school as well, just learning how to take tests, at least until you get to like your third and fourth years. And then you actually get patient care, which yeah. is super nice. There's a lot of hoops, but yeah. if it's, I guess it creates a funnel for people who actually want to do the hard work. So that's what I keep telling Definitely. myself. So <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. That's what we tell ourselves all the Absolutely. time. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's true. And it's, it's worth it a long run, just a lot of hoops to get through and eventually it's all worth it. So coming from your background of uh, training athletes and working with many people and also in that uh, high level athletes within the Navy, people with amputations, you have a lot of different perspectives and a lot of things you've experienced already, despite not being in medicine. So we always like to ask our guests because of these different perspectives, what preventive medicine means to them. So because there's so many different definitions. So what does that so mean to you? Kind of where I am right now and what, like what I've experienced so far, and this might change as I grow, as I hope this changes as I grow as a human. Um, but right now it means like developing habits or habit formation around activities to help people maintain the quality of life that they would like to have. So that's what it's always meant to me. Um, and that's kind of how it plays out in my daily life. Right. So as a coach, not just for powerlifting, but like general health and fitness, I'm tr always trying to get people to form habits that allow them to continue playing with their kids or getting really strong. Cause that's also very important, but mostly habit formation. So at least where I am now, what type what type of habits are we talking about here? Yeah, so a lot of the habits that I help people with is um, learning how to get into a gym every day or feeling confident enough to go train every day and be um, physically active. So that's one of the big ones as a coach that I focus on. But barbell medicine as a whole also focuses on nutrition and um, – those are the two big ones, exercise and nutrition that we focus on. So, so do, do you think going into the, uh, the medical field as a physician in the future, do you think your current role and what you're doing is going to give you a unique perspective compared to maybe some other doctors out there? I, I don't know. Um, I think compared to the traditional applicant, I definitely have a very different path to getting to medicine than the traditional applicant. So after doing a master's and working for by the, if I get in this year, it'll be four years, three years, four years, four years, um, before ever going to school will make it a little bit different. But I think understanding how to work with people on like a person to person basis or like one-on-one -on -one is significantly different than, uh, individuals who are coming like straight out of undergrad or out of undergrad with a year of experience. Um, I think having this like one-on-one -on -one interaction with people and understanding like motivational interviewing and uh, like understanding motivation for different people and how different people motivate is going to be a little bit different than like kind of how maybe some of my cohort will see things. So it's hard to tell. And I don't, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, so yeah, I think, you know, kind of, it's interesting. I had kind of a, a similar experience to you. So I, I did strength and conditioning coaching and CrossFit coaching for two years and nutrition consulting two years before I went to medical school after college. So I kind of had a similar roundabout way, but I found it gave me an interesting, unique perspective because you kind of, like you said, you, you kind of have this, uh, this history of already knowing how to talk to people one-on-one -on -one and understand what their goals are and how to connect with people, which, you know, unfortunately, you know, because there's so many other things you have to learn during the first two years of the didactic portion of medical school, you kind of, 
have to figure that on the fly during third and fourth year. And for a lot of people, that's a struggle. So I think it's definitely beneficial to have that, you know, background, you know, just feeling comfortable talking with individuals and you know, getting to know them as people versus just people with diseases, which is, which is, I think a, a very unique perspective. But uh, one thing we wanted to kind of talk with you about was this recent, uh, so you spearheaded a fundraiser called the load women fundraiser. Can you kind of talk to us about that and what that was about? Yeah. So um, as we've talked about my like big thing is like women's empowerment and especially in the gym. So women are chronically underloaded in the gym or chronically underloaded period, just in and out of the gym. Um, and they are often uh, not pushed to do like science or uh, engineering. And so I wanted to do, well, part of this came from COVID where it was, as you guys know, you have to do a lot of uh, volunteer work to get into medical school as well. And during COVID, there was no opportunities to do volunteer work. I was like, okay, fine. I will, I will make my own opportunity here. And so I was like, I'm going to do a fundraiser and I'm going to donate all of the money to people whom I already care about. Right. So this is a, both the groups that will be benefiting from this fundraiser will be the women's sports foundation that support getting young girls into sports. Um, and then the other one is the Perry initiative, which supports getting young women into orthopedics and engineering. All of these things are places where women are underloaded or not, uh, involved in that area as heavily. And so my goal with this fundraiser is to not just raise money to these organizations, but to continually raise awareness about the fact that women drop out of sports Typically around the time of puberty, uh, women's sports at higher levels are underfunded and uh, not supported as well. And then female athletes are paid less or not considered important. Um, so that was kind of the goal for the, the fundraiser itself. And then the, the Perry Initiative side, I've volunteered with that organization before. And they're really cool because they teach, like I went to one of their seminars and they have a seminar for medical students. And then the next day they have a seminar for high school students and the high school students get to learn how to do like, uh, surgeries on bones. Like they have big, they bring in fake bones and they help these girls like learn how to use a power tool and, um, drill through the bone and then put it back together. And they teach them how to suture. And it was really fun to watch these high school girls who'd never held a drill, like learn how to hold a drill and use it in a very applicable way that hopefully inspired them to continue pursuing a goal that is very, very far away, but um, getting more women just in science and engineering. So, Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this episode, I don't think will be up in the time that like you have for pledging. Um, I think that was what the next like 10 or 11 days. So unfortunately, we won't drive traffic that way. No, that's okay. And actually the... (laughs) I was intentional in trying to keep it as autonomous as possible. So even if people can't pledge, um, I'm going to leave the pledging open until like the 25th and the pulling open until the 25th. And then at that point I have to close it so that I can uh, do the raffle winner, but the donations will be open until Mm -hmm. the end of the month. So April 30th. Yeah. 
That's amazing initiative to put that together. I just wanted to ask, when you say like chronically underloaded, I don't know if our listeners are 100% aware of what that means, but can you talk a little bit about what it means to be chronically underloaded? And on top of that, have you had any experiences where like um, someone might tell you something where you're like loading yourself too much? Because I know you compete at a very high level in powerlifting. So has someone ever told you like you're lifting too much, you should go like do something lighter? Yes. Um, I'm going to start with the first question of why women are chronically underloaded. So women are typically encouraged to do things like Pilates or yoga or running. Um, and there's a strong narrative that's pushed towards women to not get big and exercise is meant. This is what the narrative that is pushed that exercise is meant to shrink a woman or help her fit into this smaller box, right. Or a smaller pair of jeans. And, uh, so that indicates to women, like, don't get bigger, uh, and when we talk about weights, often the goal with weights, especially for men who are strength training is I want to get bigger. I want to get stronger and I want to be more powerful. And so with women, that narrative kind of doesn't align. So women are often encouraged to not do things that are, um, loaded or loaded is the same word we've been using, but aren't encouraged to train heavy and aren't encouraged to move heavy weight, which because of the health benefits of heavy loading. So like bone formation and you guys probably know more about this than I do, but uh, bone formation and uh, blood pressure changes and stuff like that, that come from being able to load heavy. We are not affording women these, and obviously strength. We are not affording women these benefits from this kind of, training. So they're chronically underloaded in that they aren't experiencing these heavy loads that is that are so important for health. For sure. And yeah, I think, you know, a, a great example of that recently has been the NCAA tournament for men and women. There was a very large contrast between the, st- the strength conditioning facilities um, and accommodations made for the male teams. And then uh, the female teams had like a yoga mat and like 30 pound dumbbells. So I think, you know, basically that initiative is huge. And I think we're all on, that, on the same page of really helping people, everyone, like men and women train, you know, load themselves appropriately. But there is a large barrier seemingly for, you know, just uh, that narrative that just won't go away for, you know, why we continue to underload women. But I think it's an awesome cause. And I think, you know, it's not something that's going to change overnight. But I think the more voices we have and the more, you know, strong women we have um, in the science fields, you know, echoing these, you know, the, the appropriate message, I think will continue to, to make some progress. So that's awesome that you're doing that. Thanks. Yeah. I think the NCAA tournament was a big turning point for me. Like I've talked about this for a long time and I was like, wait, here's a like quantifiable piece of evidence that says like at all levels, this is happening. Like the collegiate basketball level, collegiate basketball is a huge moneymaker for the NCAA. And it turns out it's men and women who make a ton of money. And uh, it's just not reflected in the yeah definitely and then uh for sure and then the second part of that question for the personal experiences as dudes i don't think jason and i have ever like i don't i can't speak for jason i don't think we've ever experienced a time when someone tells us not to lift heavy they're always like yeah you can lift more go for it so i just want to hear from you what those kinds of things are like thank you for reminding me um so growing up i was definitely afraid of getting bigger i don't know if anyone told me 
specifically, I always got in arguments with my dad actually about, he was like, I don't want you to get me bigger because it, it was all out of love of like, I want you to like be protected. And I want you to have someone who finds you attractive. And that's all very good. Like those are things that dads should want um, for their daughters is that they can find someone to, to be with. That would be good um, if that's what they want. And then um, so, but I was, because of that kind of narratives, I was always afraid of getting bigger. Uh, so when I started training in high school, I was like, I don't want to get bigger. I'm worried. I am. I was actually getting bigger because I was eating more, but that's a different argument. <laughs> and then, um, there are people in gyms now that I'm in a powerlifting gym, like the goal of the gym is powerlifting. People don't really bother me. Uh, but if I'm at like smaller gyms or recreation centers, people are definitely either I get a lot of side eye or um, people make offhanded comments. Not many people say directly like to me, don't lift heavy. And I don't know if that's because I'm now a bigger person and like or if I have a really good resting bitch face. But um <laughs> I've seen it happen to other women a lot. Um, and if you peruse, have you guys ever found the, uh, shoot, you look like a man social media page. Yeah. 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 Oh, I, every yeah, once yeah, in a while yeah. I see someone post and like tag, you look like a man. And I go to that page. I don't yeah. follow them. And then I scroll through. I'm like, Oh my God, how is this real this life? Is, and like, yeah, oh, I think, uh, the more popular you are, the more likely that is those kinds of things are to happen. So yes, it happens all the time. I mean, yeah, I mean the, the internet is a, yeah, sadly it happens more definitely now that everyone's kind of using more social media and giving more people access to what their lives look like, you know, unfortunately it allows people who are misinformed or uh, ignorant to still comment and make their, you know, their mm -hmm. opinion known, which is unfortunate, but on a more positive note. So, or I guess a more scientific note, what relative differences exist between women and men when it comes to training? What do you, in terms of the actual science behind it, do you, how much do you know about that and how much have you read into that? Yeah. So there isn't a ton of difference between men and women when we start training. Right. So like whenever I get a client who comes to me and I'm like, cool, let's start training, whether they're a male or a female, I'm sorry, whether they're a man or a woman, I'm like, we're going to start training based on your goals and based on what you've done previously. And it's not because of the sex of that person that I'm like, we need to change your training. Uh, we are all going to kind of adapt like humans anyways. And there's a large amount of adaptation that happens due to strength training, or there's a large, sorry, there's a large range of adaptations that happen due, due to strength training. So there's a study that looks at like, many, many people, I can't remember the exact um, N of the study, but there was a range of minus 4% all the way up to 60% increases in strength and muscle size based on the same program. So the differences between each individual person is much larger than the in individual differences between men and women, right? So it wasn't like women were all at the bottom of that uh, sample and men were all at the top women were interspersed all the way throughout. And some of the biggest strength gains were actually from women. So to start with no real difference with training, as you get more and more trained, some, uh, 
things start to fall out that are a little bit more obvious. So sometimes women are less fatigable than men, meaning they can either rep a higher percentage of their one RM without getting tired, or uh, they recover faster in between sets and can go again. That is like more individual than it is uh, sex differentiated, but um, it is a common thing we see in women, but you have to wait for it to fall out. Right. So like I have that ability to rep ridiculously high percentages of my one RM, but one of my friends who is stronger than I am, she can't do that. Right. So she's like, I have one rep and that's what I've had. Um, so it's very individual and we don't like to, I say we as in barbell medicine, but I don't like to, um, kind of assign women to this, like, you're going to be better at this or not at this because of these different things um, without actually letting it fall out. Because we're taking, this is my like biggest complaint about science, is we're taking a whole group of people and we're coming up with this hypothesis and these results that are generalized, right? Based off a large group. And then we take these generalized results and we're reapplying it to a population, which means that we've lost some of the nuance. So we have to like, as we approach each person with scientific ideas, we have to be like, okay, so this is what we are looking at with you. And here are your goals and your idea or your goals and the constraints that we're working with. And how can we apply this science intelligently uh, without making just like broad blanket statements that actually don't have relevance to what you're, what you're doing. So like people who are just starting, starting to train, it doesn't really matter that maybe women can, rep a higher percentage of their one rep max. That's not going to change our training. So um, typically I say nothing. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. And then uh, one of the differences that there is, though, is the um, females have different uh, reproductive organs, obviously, and with that comes the menstrual cycle. So I know you've been putting out excellent posts on Instagram. I think you've had three of them now that you've put out on that. So once again, if you guys that are listening have not um, followed her Instagram already, then go check those out. But can you talk about that a little bit? Should women train differently based on their cycle? Is there any science behind that? Yeah, there's a ton of science behind it. So there's four different posts that I've made and they're kind of broken up about like about the different things that I've looked at. So, um, during the menstrual cycle, we have an increase in, there's two phases. So the first phase starting when a woman starts her period or starts menses. So starting from there up to ovulation is the follicular phase. And then the second half of the cycle is the luteal phase where God, I hope I'm getting this right and not misremembering. Um, From ovulation to the start of menses. And so during the follicular phase, you have this rise in estrogen and... Nope, you have this spike in estrogen near the end, at the end of the two weeks. And then there's like a smaller rise in both estrogen and progesterone during the luteal phase, kind of in the middle. So there are changes, but we want to basically look at this estrogen peak at the end of the follicular phase because it's hypothesized that estrogen increases muscle strength because in rat studies, it's shown that 
when you do an overectomy on a rat, then um, they actually recover better with exogenous estrogen and um, they stay stronger with exogenous estrogen. So once you take that estrogen away chronically, we're assuming that there are some changes that are happening. And does that change actually happen during the menstrual cycle as well? So um, obviously you can't over-optimize a human. So we use uh, muffins. What do we use? <laughs> menopause. Uh, so we use menopause as like a different predictor and because estrogen drops off there too. And we see that women uh, do start to get weaker after menopause, but they also uh, stop being as active and um, they stop exercising as much. So there's other confounding factors happening there. So when we actually look at estrogen changes across the cycle um, and like right around that peak of the follicular phase, we are seeing some differences, but they are unreliable and they're honestly pretty small. They're about 4% um, of your total strength. So 4% of total strength are like is a normal amount of variation that we can have during the cycle or like just during training, right, from day to day. We have 5% decreases in training or 5% increases in training, just depending on kind of what's going on during the day. And so that difference between uh, like general strength training and which, as we talked about earlier, has like up to 60% differences in between individuals in adaptation, that 4 or 5% difference across the menstrual cycle is pretty negligible and not reliable in all women. So we only see it in a small percentage of women. Uh, we only see it, we, we only see it in a small percentage of women. It's more reliable in like endurance training, but for strength training, it's like really not useful. And it's like one of the ways that we use, it's like one of the differences between men and women's training is that we're always telling women that they don't have to be as heavily loaded or there are reasons why they shouldn't be loading heavy and the period is often weaponized as one of those reasons um so to go back to an earlier question as well like the relevant differences between men and women women just have different narratives around training but uh men that that men don't have and the period is one of them when in reality it's on a large scale, it's probably not different. And we have bigger things that we can go after like, uh, sleep or nutrition or, um, like having good programming that are going to make a bigger difference in training and, uh, strength of rule. Yeah, absolutely. So in talking about the, the chronic underloading of, you know, women in our you know society, how do we go about changing that? What do you think the needs to happen for us to actually make mm -hmm. a difference. Yeah, in that I think, I think that's a hard question, but, um, be, and I think it's a hard question because it's so ingrained in our society as a whole. So it's going to take an entire culture shift of, and it's, it's just, it's going to take an entire culture shift to like get women to realize that the goal of life is not to get smaller. Right. And, um, the, that like being small or being petite is 
quote unquote, pretty. Right. And so it's going to take an entire culture shift from like what women see when you're like standing in line at the grocery store. Like, I don't know if you guys ever take a look at the magazines that are standing right next to you. Magazines don't stand that are right next to you in the stand. Um, The, what we purport (laughs) to be the like ideal body is definitely not what a woman who strength trains is. Um, so it'll take, some of that is going to mm-hmm. take a culture shift. It's going to take talking about it a lot more and starting to actually look at women's athletics as valuable. So there's this strong push from people who are not very nice, who are like, women's sports don't matter. I think that's the narrative I hear a lot right now is like, women's sports are boring. And so by continually telling women and young girls that women's sports are boring, they're like, well, then there's no point in me going into it. Right. So for women to do that and to not be underloaded and like changing that idea, we have to start saying that like women's sports are important. Women's sports are interesting. Some of the best athletes in the world are women. So Serena Williams has won more titles than any other male tennis player. Uh, Simone Biles is the best Olympian we've ever had full stop. Um, The U S women's national team is massively better than the men's uh, for soccer. (laughs) And um, so just like getting more women into sports is going to help. And it's just going to take time. I think over time we see a shift Since Title IX has been enacted, we've seen a shift in women's engagement in sports. More and more women are getting into sports. More and more women are staying in sports. And part of that is just going to take time. So I'm actually working on a research study right now with a couple of the athletes that I train, looking at what kind of um, barriers there are into training and where women are entering into strength training and barbell training. And so I'll have a better answer for you in like two years of like what exactly is stopping women or what is getting women into training um, in comparison to men. That data just isn't really available yet. So we're trying to figure out when did you start training? How long have you been training for and what got you into it? And if we can identify those things, we're going to be able to either target places that are like not great places to get women into training or get more women to the places that are good for starting getting them into training or sports. So we're just looking at barbell sports, but uh, the idea, yeah, it's going to take a culture shift for sure. So. Yeah. I think uh, speaking to society and like society's problems and culture shifts, probably a little bit beyond the scope of our podcast. I I think we're a little bit more focused on like, yeah. There's obviously going to be societal change. I also want to say that those uh, magazines at the side of the grocery store, those things make me extremely angry because one time, so I have hypothyroidism. One time I saw like there was something like talking about a diet for like thyroidism and like just eat this one thing and like your thyroid will be cured. And this is the type of stuff that if you are uneducated or like not informed on this type of topic, then you can fall for it mm-hmm. easily. And even if you're not um, like that, even if you're like strong in your beliefs and whatnot, just constantly seeing these same messages messages over and over wherever you go, whether it's on a billboard, on like the magazine at the grocery store, wherever it is with the double uh, NCAA thing, it just keeps reinforcing the same message over and over. 
And I think that those narratives that you talked about when it comes to women's training are definitely um, very prevalent. And those are the kind of narratives that when they keep getting repeated, get ingrained into society, into people's heads. And that's where it just keeps perpetuating itself. And that's kind of why we are why we mm-hmm. are this way. Yeah. And there's a lot of stereotype threat that goes on. Like the you look like a man page is a great example. So even the name of the page, you look like a man. There's like this strong push for women to not look like men, which as a woman who trains six times a week, I'm never going to look like my boss who is male. It's just never going to happen. Like I will never get that big just no matter what I do. And so it's just kind of starting to break down the stereotypes as well that takes time. Sorry, Garrett, I interrupted you. What were you going to say? Yeah, I think Jason, I'll call you by your last name. It's fine. Oh, I think, yeah, I think that, <laughs> that's right that literally is the i have like three first names so my middle name is ryan so jason ryan garrett is basically <laughs> yeah it's a so i get called garrett a lot at school but uh yeah i think that like you said like the, the big thing is the narrative change is you know unfortunately we live in a society where reductionist narratives tend to uh, be more prevalent and more accepted than maybe the more nuanced things um but yeah that, that definitely is the biggest hurdle in terms of i think like you said it's not like one thing that's going to change and then all of a sudden we're going to have all these you know you know women's strength training and getting more, you know, accepting that and enjoying that process that, you know, kind of like similar to how, you know, more uh, men do currently. But uh, yeah, I don't even know where to even begin with that. That's a, it's a huge, huge thing when you're talking about societal change. But I think the more people we see on social media and even in more and more little by little in the mainstream media, you know, I think we're starting to see a little bit of a shift um, where people are, you know, more proudly, you know, talking about those things. Like I love strength training. I like being stronger. I like, you know, it helps my sports performance and that sort of thing. So I think we're starting to see the tide change a little bit, but definitely there's still so, mm-hmm. yeah. So and I think to- that having, uh, having women who are very vocal about it is helpful and having women who definitely focus on ability over aesthetics is also really important. So even within strength training, there's a lot of women who still focus on aesthetics and that's fine. I want everyone to love their body and feel very comfortable in it. Uh, sorry. So I want everyone to love their body and feel very comfortable in it, but I don't want every girl to look at these Instagram influencers or, or whatever, and say like, this is what I'm supposed to look like when in reality, this is like the best of what that person ever looks like, or it's Photoshopped. Right. So like I'm super self-conscious about my teeth. I definitely Photoshop my teeth whenever I post a smile because I have fake teeth. Um, and I don't think they look very good. And so being really open about that when we do Photoshop or like being open about the fact that like, this is what I look like when I'm best, right? That's hard. And then, um, so it's important to talk about those things, but it's also important to find women who are like, I don't give a rat's patootie what I look like. I'm moving heavy weight and that's what's important to me. And I'm setting myself up for a long and healthy, able life, not able, um, high quality of life where I can do all the things I want to do and be productive in that way. And that's really important too. So. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you start to talk about, you know, sarcopenia and osteopenia, osteoporosis, those things that, you know, they don't show up on an Instagram post as like, Oh man, this Mm -hmm. person's avoiding those things. But when it really comes down to it, strength training, um, 
you know, in one of the, those differences between males and females as we age is more women per population have osteoporosis, osteopenia due to the bone density changes. And I think that strength training is literally probably one of the best studied things to change that. And that's just such a huge thing to have, mm-hmm. you know, more women have stronger bone densities and, uh, you know, less falls as they age. And we're talking about obviously older populations, but less falls, you know, more muscle mass, being able to ambulate and do, you know, activities of daily living, which are concerns for everybody. But I think those, Mm -hmm. you know, those fractures and things like that are things people don't think about, but that's a huge cause of uh, mortality and morbidity in older populations, um, particularly with females. And I think that strength training starting at an earlier age prior to that bone density peak is going to be such a huge thing to making a big difference. And I think, you know, like you said, you know, unfortunately we focus on the aesthetic things most of the time, but those real health things are really, you know, the, the, the real reason we'd like to see more people doing that aside from, like mm-hmm. you said, we still want everyone to be you know happy with their body and enjoy their life. And, but yeah, those, those life extenders and quality of life improvers are those things that like bone density and muscle mass and things like that, that don't get as much hype on, you know, maybe a social media page, but, um, but yeah. Yeah. It's not what sells. It's not sexy. Um, but I also think that just like getting women more active, like women are less active than their male counterparts on average. And even just like, you know what, if somebody never picks up a barbell after seeing my page, fine, I don't care. Barbell training might not be for you, but if you're like, I like what she's talking about and I want to be more active, that's fine too. Like go, go hiking. I don't care what you do. Just like go do something. Right. So, which will also help any kind of load bearing exercise. So. Yeah. And it comes down to those habits. Once again, that you're talking about, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to pick up a barbell. You have to go resistance train. You have to go eat the perfect diet, but it's about those little habits that Mm -hmm. you were talking about at the beginning. It's whether it's just going to the gym, that might be a habit, or it could be just doing some level of activity. If you have like a trail near your house, then like maybe hopping on that trail and going for a run, a walk, whatever it is. I'm just going for a walk outside your house. If you don't have trails, whatever it is, just any habit that gets you more active than you were a little bit Mm -hmm. previously is going to be better. And that's uh, definitely something to keep in mind that you don't have to become a high-level athlete. You don't have to become super strong and become a Olympic athlete or a, a state record holder in powerlifting. Just walk, just do something, just do some activity, just build those yeah. habits for life. Yeah. So I was going to say, speaking of things that often are surrounded by bad narratives, you've re- recently had a back injury and rehabbed it or been in the process of rehabbing it. Can you walk us through uh, you know, what happened and what you've been doing and how rehab has been going and things that maybe you've yeah. learned along the way. So this was my first real foray into uh, non-specific low back pain, which was a joy and a half. Um, if you don't know, that was sarcasm. <laughs> uh, so um, I have had, I broke my foot once when I was in high school and that was, that rehab was slow and it was fine, but I wasn't in pain really ever. Like it hurt when it happened and otherwise it was fine. Um, but this was like, uh, I was deadlifting and squatting a lot. Um, my coach was having me, uh, work up to a peak, uh, every three months, which isn't unreasonable for me, but it was pretty quick turnarounds between peaks. Um, I don't seem to handle, uh, high intensity super well. I can eat volume for breakfast, but, uh, so we were trying to like figure some stuff out to get me prepped for 2020 nationals, which didn't end up happening. Um, so we were like trying to run through these things. And I started with squats and deadlift, getting some like 
low back discomfort. And I was like, it's fine. It'll go away. Like I've had aches and pains before and it just kept getting worse. And I was going into a peak at the time and then finished the peak. Nothing really came of it. Like still uncomfortable, but not enough to like stop me from training. And then I think it was like two weeks later, I was like, this hurts. Like I typically don't tell my coach. I don't, I turned to him. We get to train together. I turned to him and I was like, I'm in pain. And he's like, okay, take weight off the bar. And so I did again. I was like, this happens. Everyone, everyone goes through this. Um, and then it just didn't get better. Like I was, I couldn't get out of bed right without like groaning and like, I'll groan to get out of bed when it's like, Oh, I'm really sore. But this was like a, I'm in a lot of pain. I couldn't touch the floor. Like I was having to come up with new ways to like achieve tasks because I was in so much pain. And so finally we were like, okay, we need to like change training and uh, start doing things a little bit differently so that things are getting better. Cause things were just like stagnated at this like really painful point. And so we changed training. Things started getting a little bit better. I was able to like do more of my ADLs independently. Um, and like, I'm not kidding. Cody tied, my boyfriend had to tie my shoes a couple times and then things started getting a little bit better. And then I had this day in training that was awful. It was like a high pain day. Like I was starting to move weights that were getting close to where I wanted to be. And then all of a sudden I felt this like really painful pop in my back, like right about the same spot where I had been having all of this pain and I was deadlifting at the time. And I just like dropped the bar and like, I was crying, um, uncontrollably. Cause I was one, I was terrified. I was like, I just really hurt myself. Like I'm really scared. Um, and my coach was there. So Jordan was like, it's okay. Like, we're going to be okay. Like, let's stop for today. Um, we're going to bench. And, um, I couldn't bench even like, and this was a new development in that I couldn't do anything. And so it was a Friday. So I just like closed up shop and I was like, I'm going home and, uh, ended up sitting on the couch for most of the weekend, uh, in like more pain than I had been in the entire time. And so at this point I was like, all right, I have to do something about this. Um, so my boyfriend is a physical therapist and he was like, well, if we go to the hospital, like they're just going to make you take a painkiller and some muscle relaxers and send you back on your way. And he's like, it's not going to fix anything. He's like, let's go for a walk. I was like, um, I cried getting out of bed this morning. You want me to go for a walk? He's like, yep, let's go for a walk. So we were watching our friend's dogs. So we took the dogs for a walk. And by the time we got back to the house, I was like, okay, I feel a little bit better. And then the next day I woke up a little bit better and then we took the dogs for another walk. And I was like, I feel miraculous. Like I'm not in pain at all. And then that following Monday, it was a little bit challenging. Uh, I think I squatted to a high box with a barbell. That was all I could do with a belt on. So like I was geared up, ready to move 45 pounds. <laughs> and then um, I deadlifted <laughs> this far. I put the bar on boxes and I literally moved two inches. Sorry, you guys can't see this. Uh, I moved two inches. And then um, over time, I have worked down. And like a week later, I was totally fine. Like no back pain at all. Um, so either my body was like going through this process and just like 
something weird happened and my body, no damage happened during that like high pain day. And so I've been slowly working the bar back down to the floor from that two inch range of motion. And I'm now deadlifting from the floor again. I'm squatting to death again uh, without boxes. And it's more than the 45 pound bar. And uh, now the goal is to slowly increase weight and keep the tolerance really high. Like I have developed this high tolerance back to heavy weight. So we're going to try and keep that tolerance. We're going to keep the range of motion where it is. But this whole time has been finding exercises that are not painful and that I can do and load reasonably heavy. So for me, reasonably heavy is like somewhere around 275 pounds and I'll do it for like 10 reps. Um, so I'm still getting the same stimulus from the, from the weight, but it's just the weight's really low because I have to do a lot of them. I learned that I'm very out of shape. That's basically what I learned during this process. Uh, but the other thing is like, this takes time. It doesn't mean you're like never going to lift heavy again. Um, I'm heading now into 2021 nationals, hoping, hoping to, uh, break some all time PRs on both squat and deadlift and definitely bench. So luckily bench was not really affected by any of this. So my bench has just been like slowly plodding along, but it's, it's really scary stuff. Like, especially when you fully identify as an athlete and you're like, I'm an athlete. And that is like a large part of my self-concept. And when I can't do that, what am I going to do with myself? <laughs> like those kinds of thoughts came through my head quite often. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, weirdly enough, I had a very similar experience. So my first, uh, second semester, of my first year of medical school, I was, I was getting ready for a meet in mm -hmm. uh, Austin was coaching me at the time. Um, and like, I was like PRing everything mm -hmm. almost every single week. So I, like, I just pulled 600 for a triple and was getting ready to maybe hopefully pull 300 kilos in the meet and PR my squad and, and bench as well. And then all of a sudden, similar to you, I started like, with a weird, like back pain that was like not, or discomfort that, you know, kind of affected my training a little bit, but like I could power through it and like it, but then after training, my back would really get sore. And then like, from there it was the same thing where it's like, all of a sudden I couldn't, like deadlift 135 and I like in Austin was like, it's going to be fine. You know, like we had been through it before, you know, talking about the pain experience is weird and you know, it's unpredictable. And then eventually it got to a similar place where like, I was like, I can't squat the bar. I can't deadlift. And, and then I went through this similar process of, you know, then I started to get, you know, stronger and more tolerant again to those movements. And then like randomly I'd have these like periods of time where like, all of a sudden the pain was like at a 10 again. And it's like, you know, you're, you're finally working up to, you know, your normal working weights and then you're, you have another event. So it can really be, you know, it, it's obviously more mental, I think for, especially for, like you said, for athletes where it like challenges your self identity. So you're like, I mean, I'm not strong anymore. I can't lift. Like, so I'm going in and I'm just, you know, squatting and benching the empty bar tempo. Like that doesn't feel like training. I feel like it's, you know, it's like, it's, it's really defeating after a while. So I think that that's one of the things with like that non-specific low back pain is that it's so unpredictable. You could go like for like weeks at a time improving then all of a sudden you have a weird day and the next day you're back to normal or two days later back mm -hmm. to normal. So it's very strange, but yeah, I had a very similar experience, but it's, um, it's tough to bounce back from some of those high pain days, especially like if it's setting you back from, you know, where you were, but it, it's definitely a, a weird experience for sure.
I was going to say, there's a couple uh, takeaways that I want to get from this. And one of those is that, as Jason was saying, that back pain can be very unpredictable. And you don't necessarily know if it's going to get worse, might get better right away. If this is just something that's transient for the day, might be gone tomorrow. So both of them did not stop training. They felt a little bit of discomfort. They didn't say, oh, I'm, I'm injured. I'm going to stop training altogether. We're just going to rest for like two weeks. They kept training. And what could have happened is um, back pain goes away right away. Unfortunately, it didn't. But if it did... Uh, go away right away, then that would be excellent. But a lot of people might miss that training stimulus just because they thought they're injured from a little bit of an ache. The second important thing is that um, your body is actually incredibly resilient. As we're seeing, they were able to consistently still squat and like deadlift and bench pretty heavy weight while they were experiencing discomfort. And it doesn't necessarily mean that anything's like wrong with them. It's just our ba- our bodies are going to go through aches and pains. It's just part of the life. Like that's just going to happen. Some days you have to deal with it. Okay. And then the other part is that when there is that that uh, like pop or whatever happens, that significant event that happens, it doesn't also necessarily mean that there's damage because as in Claire's case, um, she got better. It didn't mean that like she popped a dish, something didn't happen, she didn't get a fracture. Pops and cracks and all those things don't necessarily mean that something terrible is going on in the body. I've broken something, I've fractured something. It's, it's possible. Like people's knees crack all the time. My knees crack all the time when I'm squatting. It doesn't mean that there's nothing wrong with them. They're perfectly fine. And you can continue to get back. And she got back to 100%. And now she's going to hit PRs. So she wasn't injured. There wasn't any damage done. And I think we discussed this in our episode with uh, Dr. Ray as well, where those like aches and pains don't necessarily mean that there's physical damage and harm done to those tissues, muscles, ligaments, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. It's just part of the pain process. It's kind of, uh, we don't exactly know what the pain process is going to be like for every individual, but you just kind of deal with it. You move on, you develop a plan. And even when they had that uh, excruciating pain sometimes, they didn't stop training. They still did something, whether it was walking like Claire or breaking down the movements like Jason did to much lighter weights and continuing to build back up. You just deal with it. So I think there's a lot of important takeaways from both those stories. I just want to highlight some of those real quick for our listeners back home. Yeah, that's a great synopsis. I think one of the things that, you know, I think it was Dr. Spinelli, um, who was on our podcast a couple of times, who described it as outside of red flag things, which we're not, we won't get into the, the, the in-depth things with that right now. But outside of red flag things, low back pain is kind of like the common cold of the musculoskeletal system. You know, you kind of end up, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a sign of something major is going on. It's just, you know, happens pretty commonly and ends up, you know, being pretty significant in terms of, you know, it's discomfort and pain and things like that, but it doesn't always necessarily mean something is horribly wrong. Um, but yeah, you also touched on the fact that human beings are resilient. You know, we, I think we don't give ourselves and our bodies enough credit for, you know, its ability to, you know, do its thing despite discomfort or pain. But, uh, I think the biggest thing, the other thing I would take away from that is management of expectations is a huge portion of rehabbing anything. You know, when you talk about like Claire and I had the same experience where, you know, it challenges your self identity of who you are, you know, and I think it's not just the fact that it hurts. It's, it's, the questions about the future. Am I ever going to compete again? Am I going to, is it going to get better? Am I going to be able to be the same person I was before this event happened? So I think those sort of expectations and managing expectations of like letting people know, like, yeah, there are going to be ups and downs. You might go, you know, full steam ahead for a couple of weeks and then have a setback. That's perfectly normal. And I think, you know, when it happened to me, I had never had been through anything like that outside of, you know, maybe some fractures as a kid and, you know, maybe more like acute injuries, but like, it, it's just a weird thing that is, if you're not managing those expectations, you can easily see how people give up entirely and just, you know, say like, I'm done lifting or I'm done, you know, I hurt my back and now I'm, 
going to go see the ortho and say he's going to fix it. So yeah. I, it, it is one of those things that I think we have to manage people's expectations and our own expectations too. But um, it's always fascinating. I love hearing people's stories about their rehabbing things, and especially when it comes to low back pain, because it is so frequent, especially maybe in our little community of power lifters or weightlifters. Um, so, I, you know, I always like to hear people's experience and it seems like there's a lot of commonalities and people go through a lot of the same things, which is, which is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the, it's interesting hearing kind of the same narratives that Austin gave you that Jordan gave me of like, it's going to be okay. Like this is not like the end and having a professional, whether that be coach or a physician or physical therapist there who also prescribes to these same ideas have helping guide you. Um, cause like I, I know all of these things inherently and I coach my athletes through them sometimes too. But then when it was me, that was like sheer panic. I was like, I'm going to die. <laughs> like, and being able to be objective about yourself is really challenging. And so being able to ask for help it is, is yeah. really important. Going through that process and like after explanations and whatnot and synopsis, is there anything else that you wish more people knew about pain and rehab? Uh, kind of tangentially related. I wish more people knew that like what you lift in the gym, especially for uh, competitive strength athletes, like what you move in the gym is not necessarily indicative of what you're going to move on the platform. So like right now, my heaviest squat I've done is 140 kilos. And I know that that does not mean that I will only move 140 kilos at nationals, right? Like there's a lot more work to be done. There's, I don't know what the next 10 weeks holds. And I want people to recognize that if you take five kilos off the bar, it doesn't mean you're taking five kilos during training. If you take five kilos off the bar during training, it doesn't mean you're taking five kilos off your total at nationals, right? Like you're doing what you can today to be, as successful as possible at whatever competition you're headed to. So uh, I wish more people knew that. And I wish more people talked about pain and rehab, like as athletes. So a lot of people are like, I don't want to talk about it because it's embarrassing. Like it's embarrassing to go into the gym and lift 70 kilos for me for a deadlift. Like I'm embarrassed to talk about that, but I want more people saying like, this is hard. <laughs> Because it's no one talks about it. So when it happens to you, you panic yeah. and you're like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to do next. And why am I the only person going through this? When in reality, you're not the only person, like a large proportion of people go through it. So, and yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's one of the best, I, I think things is because we're social creatures, you know, we learn by observing and we learn by socializing. So I think one of the things that, you know, no matter how many research papers are out there, you know, more people are going to learn from seeing you go through a rehab process or another athlete that they know or look up to or train with or whatever, then they are going to maybe go and actually search out evidence. And then like you mentioned about Jordan and Austin, I think, you know, on the flip side of that, imagine if they had gone the other way, imagine if they had panicked, you know, our coaches are, are also we were lucky that they were, you know, physicians who are well read on the evidence, but it could easily go the other way where you have a coach or someone tell you, you need to stop for a month or stop. You know, so I think on, on that realm, it highlights the importance of finding professionals who are well read and, and well up to date on the evidence of what should be done. And also very good at kind of, you know, uh, managing expectations and things like that. But mm -hmm. lastly, before we kind of wrap it up here, we always like to ask people 
Uh, we call it the coffee shop question. So, you know, okay. say 10 years from now, you're in the coffee shop or even maybe tomorrow you're in the coffee shop. Someone comes to you and says, Claire, I love your Instagram. You're super smart. How do I get healthy? What is, what's the best two minute advice you can give them before your coffee shows up that what's their two minute pitch of this is how you get healthy. This is a terrible question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it's this the most question. Re- it's the most reductionist question. I know. Yeah. This is, that's why it's terrible. Um, I think a random stranger that I've never met, I know nothing about them. I would say, uh, mm-hmm. make sure that you're meeting the physical activity guidelines for, from the world health organization and eat vegetables more often. Like that, there that would go. be my advice. Like hey, perfect, short and sweet. That's great, that, that's it's not perfect. two minutes, 15 yeah. seconds. Yeah. There just we go. because, <laughs> That, yeah, protein is like pushed that. very yeah. heavily in our society right now. So I don't feel like I need to hit on that. Um, maybe that person needs that, but like that's pushed elsewhere. Uh, yeah. Vegetables aren't pushed very hard right now. And beating those activity guidelines shows like that's the dose dependent effect or dose dependent. Like uh, that's the dose you need in order to get some effect. And above that, it's less reliable. So yeah. Also, yeah. All right. Perfect. Thank. Yeah. Nope. That oh, was go it. ahead. Go ahead. If you have something no, else to add. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for everything uh, you've said yeah. on this podcast. You think there's a lot thank of value uh, to deliver to our listeners, and uh, we want to thank yeah, you for your thanks time. Thanks for having me. This was really, really fun. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.